The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Linfield University or Linfield University departments. Hey guys, it's Mara and Sincere, and welcome back to another episode of Politalks. Today, we're joined by Isis Hatcher, a fellow student here at Linfield. Isis, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Um, hi, my name is Isis. I am a senior here at Linfield, and I am uh, majoring in international relations. Today, we sat down with Isis to talk a little bit more about the laptop she will be presenting this Monday. Um, so... My laptop is titled White Rage, um, but the original piece of writing was um, from a blog post I did called A White Man? No! Fantastic title. Yeah, <laughs> We love that title. Sounds Thank you, I try. Catchy. <laughs> Listen in for an excerpt from Isis's piece today. There are many d- definitions of white rage, both gendered and not. Author Carol Anderson defines white rage in a more metaphorical sense as this rage can be explained as a racial backlash to black accomplishments and advancements. She specifies by using examples from the response to Brown versus the Board of Education, the protests over Mike Brown, voter ID laws, the election fraud of 2020, conveniently present in cities of predominantly black citizens such as Detroit, Atlanta, or uh, Milwaukee, but not present in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, Her definition of white rage works as a function of white supremacy and acts to regress black accomplishments. On the other hand, Wikipedia defines angry white male as a derogatory term for white males holding conservative or right-wing beliefs in the context of US politics, often characterized by opposition to liberal, anti-discriminatory policies and beliefs and claims that angry white males were acting in response to the introduction of affirmative action in the 90s. Journalist Connor Friedersdorf provides multiple definitions, offering that white male rage is a product of privilege and entitlement. The reactions of Brett Kavanaugh demonstrated his long history with entitlement and privilege. The rage expressed in the Senate was defensive and mirrored by the lashing out of angry Republican senators. Others think that white male rage is inappropriately used as it is still a racial and gender generalization that puts people in boxes. While these are great, I think that the root of this rage can go back even further. Poor white rage is rooted in America's greatest sin, slavery. As the United States economy boomed through the social and politically enforced laws of chattel slavery and the introduction of new technology, Poor white people were economically closer to the enslaved than the wealthiest slave owners. Little has changed since then, and the rage felt at the Capitol was not uncalled for. It was simply misdirected. Thank you for sharing that, Isis. So what inspired you to write this piece? Um, well, the events at the Capitol, January 6, 2021, inspired me to do this. Um, I was very confused and hurt and frustrated and angry because what I saw on TV was um, unjustified anger from a group of people that I could not understand and I could not empathize with. Mm. And so in order to be able to empathize and face this fear that I have of white people and what white people can and have done to people that look like me and honestly anybody who's not white, 
my desire to face my fears required me to look a lot into why they were angry and studying the history of it kind of resulted in in this piece of work yeah thank you for sharing that i think one of the things you said a lot is fear there's fear um but on both sides you know uh white people are very scared right now and doing some things that are um not very productive to our society or democracy and BIPOC people are also very scared of this kind of of actions that are white supremacy they are white supremacy and so how how do we kind of like reconcile with this fear you know um we're angry and we're scared and it's really hard to kind of get those emotions specifically to kind of chill you know what I mean mm -hmm. so I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that yeah well I have a few different thoughts I think the first step is to feel a hundred percent of what you're feeling um, you cannot find a solution if you haven't dealt with how you feel about it because if you're so caught up in how you feel about it then your hatred in that moment will outweigh maybe a moment of compassion that you otherwise would have experienced the next step is to ask questions i ask people questions because it's it very rarely happens that people always know a hundred percent of why they think what they think unless someone asks them most people don't know where their beliefs come from and so just in asking well why do you think that or well who did you grow up with like where did you learn that um, why does this make you afraid and who do you think of when you feel that fear mm. all of these things is kind of taking the responsibility of BIPOC to take care of white people and take responsibility for white people's problems you know racism is a white person's problem mm -hmm. we just deal with the symptoms of it and in asking white people these questions white people can finally start to answer their own questions rather than saying it was your fault as a black person or as an asian person or as a latino to put yourself in that position where a white person could harm you right yeah, yeah. and i think that that's a fantastic point it's uh the questioning um and like you were saying you know, as, as BIPOC, we ask, we ask people that question. And, but I mean, it's, it's a very, it's something that you can do. You don't need another person to examine your own beliefs and where they came from. Like that is something that you can do just by sitting with yourself and thinking, you know, like I get all my information from this one source. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I grew up watching this one source because my parents watched this one source, you know? Yeah. And, um, like, you know, examining your own habits and, like, media consumption and yeah. things like that. And so, yeah. yeah. The, the interesting thing with race is that white people, and I'm speaking generally, very rarely are put in situations where they are forced to question their identity mm -hmm. because the world was built for them. Mm -hmm. The world we live in is easier if you're white, and that's just a fact. Mm -hmm. um, and so BIPOC, and I would say... To an extent, every BIPOC person, whether or not they connect deeply with their race group or whatever, um, has had a moment where they've gone, 
oh, this is who I am in this space. Mm -hmm. And they've either figured it out themselves or someone else's actions told them what role they were supposed to play. And white people have always been the determinants of that role. Mm -hmm. So they just need to take some more accountability and spend time with their own existence. Yeah. Whiteness has, the white identity was created based off of what white people weren't. So you were white if you weren't black. Mm -hmm. You were a good white woman if you did everything black women didn't do. Mm. And you were a pure white woman because you weren't a Chinese prostitute. Right. And that was just the facts. Mm -hmm. So in this shifting world, the the quote-unquote white identity needs to be reimagined. You know, every individual has to do that themselves mm -hmm. and take ownership for who they are. You are more than just what you aren't. Right. Acknowledge what you are because BIPOC have had to do that in order to maintain their sanity. Mm -hmm. And white people have for too long gotten away with just forcing other people to conform to what they're comfortable with. Right. And I just want to mention really quickly, like what you said really resonated with me, this idea that white people have been defining BIPOC individuals for entirety of history and as someone who is adopted, who was raised by, who's ethnically Chinese, but who was adopted, raised by a white mother in a white town, and this kind of idea that we learn about our racial identities based on what white society tells us our racial identities are. Like I learned about my race, about who I was, from people calling me chink and from people, you know, telling me that an Asian person is like this or Asian women do this, you know very racialized and in, in some instances like very sexualized things attached to my race and that's how growing up in that situation I learned what my race was because white people told me you know what I mean um and now of course that I've left that space and have met so many other BIPOC individuals learned more about myself and my culture I define myself um but but then it's like it's kind of I don't want to sound like I'm pitying white people, but it's kind of sad when you think about the fact that they don't consider these things. Um, meanwhile, BIPOC people are, of course, forced to think about it all the time. Um, and it's a disservice to white people that they aren't put in situations where they really need to consider and examine who they are in that space. I think it's a disservice because they miss out on a lot of, um, on seeing a lot of things uh, about our society and, um, you know, maybe being parts of more diverse communities and opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I, sorry, I don't know if you... No, no, I just, I was thinking about the way that all of us may have gotten into college had to do with something, with with the challenges that we faced in life or something like that. Like, I remember being in, in my, like, high school guidance counselor's office, and she said, okay, like, what have you gone through? And I was thinking, like, okay, what are you, what are you getting at here? And what she was getting at is the the traumatization of black lives that that is used to perpetuate like diversity or inclusion to make space for um, identities that have been limited before so that they can be molded to be helpful for institutions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think it's really important that we call it out when we see it, because when I was in high school, I was a kid. I didn't know how to. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'm being helpful to my community. This is this is how I play my part. But now that I'm in college, I start to see like how that affects you over a long long period of time. And I think I think my next question sort of focuses on the 
the space that Linfield has in reception to this, like this is a laptop. Um, when you were writing this, were there any things that you were thinking about, about after the lab talk, about the conversations that you wanted to have and you wanted your peers to have after listening to you? Because I think that's also really important. Yeah. Um, the first feeling I actually felt was fear. Mm-hmm. I thought about not doing this lab talk up until literally five minutes before. And even while I was recording it, I was like, I'm going to be hate crimes. I was like, I'm just signing up to endanger my life right now. Um, I'm telling white people what they need to hear, but what they likely don't want to digest. What they yeah. refuse to hear, honestly, for, for generations. So long. Yeah. For yeah. generations. Yes. Um, and, and I'm more afraid that I really think that that this white rage is a fear of failure and an extreme insecurity. And while I, I genuinely hope that after the lab talks, people can have reflective conversations about themselves, about their own lives, about their own experiences, that doesn't have to feel like a competition of trauma mm-hmm. between white people and BIPOC. Yeah. I feel like it's almost, it's almost erotic the way that white people will ask BIPOC to tell them about their lives Mm -hmm. and this the greed in which they suck in our trauma is is sexual in a way this like taking yeah exactly and how they sensationalize it yeah and it's linked to exploitation obviously yeah yeah and it's like those are things that we don't we don't bring Mm -hmm. to these conversations Mm -hmm. because we don't want to make them uncomfortable yeah but they don't know that it's the stuff that keeps us up at night. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something really important. If I'm okay, like, <laughs> listen to the lab talk and talk about me if you want. But white people have to start feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. BIPOC are really good at feeling uncomfortable. And uncomfortable our whole lives. We get a whole it's, job of that. It's our life. It is yeah. what we have been raised to adapt to situations of discomfort our entire lives as a necessity for our own safety and emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. White people have to start getting on board with feeling uncomfortable because, frankly, I'm really tired Mm -hmm. of constantly being afraid when someone else could take three extra steps in their day and not say something racist. Right. You know, or... Maybe reflect and realize that that was a microaggression. Right. Or don't excessively stare at someone. Mm-hmm. And it's hard when you call people out about, whether they're white or non-white, it's hard when you call people out about behaviors that are racist or that perpetuate racism because mm-hmm. it's such a touchy sub- subject. you know. And people, we say this all the time, but that like the way that we are socialized in the United States, if you like grew up in the United States, and you were you went through our education system and you watched our media you are socialized to favor white people you know those are the the representations and those are the good representations that we've always been fed the history that we have is incredibly whitewashed and is a complete erasure it has a it just it completely erases any kinds of bipoc experiences um, trauma but also joy like exactly. it erases bipoc success you know yeah. And basically, my what I was trying to say is that we 
everyone is racist, you know? Yeah. And that's why we need to work. It's not enough to be, like, you know, not racist or whatever. You have to be anti-racist. Yeah. And that's, that whole discussion about that, that's where that comes in. You know, but, like, the, what you were saying about, you know, being, um, being able to be uncomfortable. Yeah. That's, like, acceptance. Acceptance is going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and it might not, it's definitely not going to be the best experience you've ever had, but, like, take that in and grow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the interesting thing about the feeling of discomfort and the exhaustion that comes from being anti-racist um, was something I felt over the summer. A lot of white people with the rise in the BLM movement um, had come forward and was like, I'm doing all of this work. It's so exhausting. And it was strange for me to be like, congrats on doing the work, I, I I need you to do this, so I'm grateful. And then I was also very frustrated because I had this really intense feeling of wanting to shake someone and be like, your exhaustion is my daily life. Mm-hmm. You're, you've been tired for 20 minutes. I've been tired for 21 years. Right. I shouldn't have to start kindergarten have my dad teach me about the color of my skin and what that means. Mm. That should not be the most important thing before I even learn how to read, Mm. you know? So we are, we're literally looking at the same picture and seeing entirely different things. Mm -hmm. So how do we create the language? How do we create the space? And how do we motivate people who don't, prioritize the work because it doesn't directly affect their lives so we so we can see the same thing we can be on the same page i just wanted to mention really quickly yeah because since what you said about this idea that when you were applying to colleges the person was like well what's what's happened to you you know this idea this like we were talking about sensationalization of trauma because one of the things i think about getting us to see like getting two groups of people who have vastly different life experiences to see the same picture the same way. Of course, a part of that is sharing our experiences, but the way that people go about asking about our experiences and trying to get us to share is so exhausting. Mm -hmm. And this idea that like what Sincere and Isis were saying is like the, I don't know, just, I had the same kind of experience as well with like my college essay and and then being like basically like play up the fact that you were you know abandoned you know play up the yeah, fact that yeah. you don't know your biological parents that you were you know born in in a, a different country and every time of course I use that narrative people always get really sad especially white people and it's this kind of pity and also entitlement to my story they're like, oh, have you thought about this? You know, have you considered this option? Or what can I do to help? And it's like, this isn't just like a story. Like, a, it, it's my life. You know, I've thought mm-hmm. about every possible option I could pursue about this. I've thought about everything I could do. This is not your story to co-opt and yeah. use for your benefit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things I think is so hard about when white people are like, we're trying to listen, tell us your stories. It's like, think about how you're listening. Are you listening for your benefit or for ours? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's um, not to compare it to rape, but it's like people, 
when people find out that an individual has been raped, they need to know every gory detail before they can empathize. Right. Rape and consistent racism is traumatic. Mm -hmm. You know, so if, so why, why would you do this? You know, I personally just think it's rude, you know, um, but I also work in admissions. So what you're saying about trying to enter college and trying to sell your trauma for diversity points, basically, I wrote my admissions paper, my personal essay on my name and the experience of going from a person with a unique name to someone who needed to master geopolitics because all of a sudden I am the terrorist and having a best friend who's from Afghanistan and watching both of us interact with bullying from people that have known us our entire lives, you know? So I wrote about that and someone told me your essay would have been so much stronger if you just talked about your experiences with racism. And I was like, yes, but I will always spend my life dealing with racism. Mm -hmm. This is a moment that was unique in that at the end of the day, I actually never thought I was going to get bullied for my name. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but racism, I understood. Mm -hmm. I was like, white people are going to be racist. Mm -hmm. So for me, I thought that's nothing new. And for someone else, they thought it was the only thing that would allow me to be successful was selling this story of my pain. And what I meant about me working in admissions is I really like, I think about it a lot. I want to see what a white person submits for their personal statement and what a BIPOC person submits mm -hmm. as a statement. And I just want to see what's worthy of admitting. Right. I could have talked about my parents' divorce, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but for me, I don't think that would get me into school. Yeah. What would get me into school is selling my pain. Yeah. And a divorce is not as painful as racism. And the the pressure to sell your pain is, I don't want to say exclusively, because of course I don't know, but I'm going to guess that it's slanted towards BIPOC individuals, yeah. you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Like, I wanted to write an essay about how all three of the cats that I had growing up were named after, like, published authors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that was not the thing that they thought would get me into college. Like, that is the most creative thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, I know in the sense that we're talking about, like, career college counselors. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the again, the fact that they have to, they're, they're telling us yeah. what... They, what, to, what to say, what to say yeah. as, as BIPOC individuals for a white society. Yes. I want to know what they tell white students. Yeah. I remember, like, wanting to put um, events that I was doing at protests, doing the same thing as white students at protests for people who really needed that space and then seeing that be blown up in a different space mm -hmm. and how alienating that felt. I, that was not a conceived thought, so. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. That happened. No, I'm all... no, you're good. You can... oh. Yeah. Does anyone have any closing thoughts? Well, I'm excited for the Linfield community to hear your lab talk. Me I think too. that it's a huge gift, and I hope that it brought you the, I don't know, the, gra the grace of writing it and the experiences of 
knowing that you're doing something better for yourself and better for those around you. Yeah, um, I I know I'm I'm still concerned about like backlash, mm-hmm. um, but I'm happy I wrote this and I'm, I did it because 18 year old me never would have because I was so caught up in being in desiring to be liked by white people mm-hmm. that I would condone racism or be complicit in racism Mm. because the idea of being ostracized for being an overly opinionated and therefore angry black woman was a stereotype I didn't want to adhere to. And And then I realized that I have so much to be angry about and all of it is justified but how do I use that anger to be productive? Mm-hmm. Because if I'm being unproductive, then I am just doing what white rage has done mm-hmm. consistently throughout history. And that has not been helpful across the board. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately we have to do something differently, um, which might not always be fun because it means in my opinion, holding back, at times when I just want to rage. Um, But I genuinely hope it will be helpful, beneficial. I hope it will spark conversation. I hope it will push Linfield in to a better direction. This is a college that changes lives. And I want to create anti-racist Linfield graduates. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great goal for the school. I think that's an amazing goal. I agree. Yeah. 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 We are the power of girls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as we wrap up this episode, thank you so much for joining us, Isis. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. But before we go, we ask all of our guests on this podcast, do you have any recommendations, anything that you would like to um, share with our listeners that they should watch, listen to, or read? Yes, um, you have to watch the show Fleabag. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, You definitely need to watch it. I personally think it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. Um, After the first episode, it might have been my favorite show (laughs) after the first episode. And if you don't have Amazon Prime, email me and I'll give you my account just to watch the show. That's how much I need you to watch it. For those those listeners out there who don't know that Isis and I are roommates, I just was talking about how this was her favorite show of all time for like literally two weeks. And I realized, and then she told me, she's like, nah, I haven't even finished the first season. And I was like, what the heck? You were literally like hyping the show up so much. And she's only seen a couple episodes. It's beautifully written. Email me. We'll have a very lengthy conversation about it. Yes. Well, you heard it here, folks. Fleabag with Isis Hatcher. I don't know where I was going (laughs) Monday nights at 7 p.m. You are Amazon video. Yes. Now this on is not sponsored. <laughs> I love the student voices yeah. podcast. Me too. Me too. And you're watching Disney Channel. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Paul Talks. We will see you next week.